Hey, welcome to the Souls Church Podcast. This is Andrew Lundy, and I'm thrilled to welcome you today to a very special episode. This is not going to be one of our typical Sunday sermon recordings, but this teaching today comes from one of our recent midweek lectures. If you didn't know, this summer as a church, we have shaped our entire summer season around the vision to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. That comes out of Second Peter. And we've themed the summer, Summer School. We're seeking to know God more in order that we might love Him more and love like Him more. And so it's made up of two main parts. You have a Sunday morning teaching series that's entitled Nine Ologies. Maybe you've been following along with that here on the podcast. And that's a series where we are exploring nine essential doctrines that every Christian should know. And then in addition to Sundays, we've been having Thursday night midweek lectures where we have been bringing in some different topic specialists to take these topics and sort of dissect them from an apologetic, also a historical and philosophical point of view. Now, recently, we brought in Pastor Bill Schott, who comes from Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. He's an associate pastor there, where he also serves as the chair of the Bible department for the school, Calvary Christian Academy. Pastor Bill recently came in to lecture on the historical evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I know for me personally, this was a message that both educated my mind and ministered to my heart. And I believe the Lord wants to do the same with you. So if you're able to sit back, relax, maybe get a pen and paper out, get ready to push pause and rewind. There's a lot of good content coming your way. Enjoy this message from Pastor Bill Schott. Well, good evening. It's good to see you guys. And, um, you know, whenever you do a PowerPoint presentation, the first slide is so important. You want everybody to say, hey, we're going to have fun, look at the fun slide and all that. And I thought, what better way to do that than to put up seven historical tests? You know you're going to have a, a great, great time uh, like crazy tonight, right? So um, <clears throat> um, Andrew's absolutely right. Uh, there was a day where if you told me he'd be leading a church, uh, I would have just said, um, only by the grace of God, only by the grace of God. Andrew is, is standing in South Florida as a testimony of always having hope for, for everybody, always having hope for everybody. And, um, and it's just, Andrew, it's always a blessing. I was in Russia with him some 12, 13 years ago uh, doing ministry with him over there and so forth. And it's, it's, it's just a, it's, a, it's a privilege for me to have this night uh, be real like it is. Uh, it's wonderful. Okay, so um, I would like to open in prayer myself, if I could, uh, ask you to bow your heads for just a second. Father God, in Jesus' name, Lord, may everything that's said and heard be uh, filtered through you and approved by you. And Lord, may you uh, find every heart in here willing to follow where you would lead them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I, I, I personally think it's universally true that there's really nothing much more important we can talk about in the entire world and any topic than this. Because Andrew hinted at it, but let me just say it directly. If Jesus died and rose from the dead, then everybody is called to follow him, period. There's no exception to that whatsoever. So the only way you're kind of off that hook of living this life not following Jesus if, is somehow you can overcome these arguments tonight, quite frankly. That you can say here's what's wrong with the evidence. Here's what's wrong with the situation. Here's, here's something that I have that's more reasonable and believable 
than, than uh, the evidence that history has provided for us. Nobody has ever asked a Christian to walk in what has been called blind faith. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. It's completely accompanied with evidence, and uh, we're going to go through some of that tonight. I want to reiterate one other time, just kind of from a pastor's perspective. If you, I, I don't hardly know any of you here, so I'm, if I sound insulting, just know that I always do. It's not because I'm just here, okay? So <laughs> um, if you walk away tonight an unbeliever, um, I want you to own it. I want you to be an intelligent unbeliever. I want you to be able to say, I know all that stuff, but it's unconvincing for these very sound reasons. Not an emotional response, that you're intellectually saying this doesn't add up. Or be able to quote some people that, that try to debunk this or do something. Because what I have found in South Florida is that the unbeliever doesn't have uh, any historical reasons for not believing. They're all emotional reasons. They've been hurt by the church. They get confused about the problem of evil. Something like that makes them a non-believer. But that is not going to cut it on Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, the reality of God is what you've, you've got to address. So I just want us to be tonight not so emotional but much more intellectual, uh, and then we'll take questions at the end and, and go from there. Fair enough? All right. If you said no, I would do this anyways. Okay, <laughs> just kidding. All right, so let's get into the fun and excitement of seven historical tests. So when we, see we have this book, this book has a claim, this book has a story made up of many, many stories, correct? There are 66 books within this book written by 40 authors over 1,400 year period on three different continents, and there is complete unity and harmony throughout with no contradictions. Now, if we did the telephone game and we started over here and you whispered in each other's ear a message, it would come out completely different over here, correct? So how do you get 40 authors over 1,400 years on three different continents to tell one unified story? Only if God superintends it. So what I'm saying is this is the inspired word of God. And just a general statement about South Florida, we do not fear this the way we're supposed to. We don't revere it the way we're supposed to. We've got a long, long way to go. I pray God uses tonight to let us take a step in that direction. I would say two steps, but I would fall off the stage. All right. Now, when we look at ancient literature, which this is ancient literature, we have to, we can't just dig up archaeologically these manuscripts and go, oh, it's written here, so we must believe it. These things get scrutinized. Uh, ancient documents get put through a series of tests, all of them, whether they're religious or secular or whatever. How do we know when we find something written by Plato, something by Homer, something by these people? How do we know if that is trustworthy or telling us the truth about history? Well, we've come up with tests that are, we've been doing for, for decades and decades and decades. And it gives us, on a scale, uh, the reliability of a text, okay? So here are seven historical texts that ancient manuscripts receive when we find them. Now, let me start by saying this. One of the key factors is how many manuscripts have you found? If you find one manuscript and it says something, then all the reliability of that manuscript lies on the one person that wrote the one manuscript, correct? But if you find 20 manuscripts in different parts of the world, 
and they line up at least like nine out of every ten words are exactly the same, then you know they were faithfully copied, right? They were faithfully transmitted. There's no way you can get nine out of every ten words right just not carefully copying a, a document. Does that make sense? Okay, so <clears throat> in ancient writing, Homer's Iliad, you familiar with the Iliad written by Homer? The guy married to Marge? Okay. <laughs> I, I don't get any funnier than this, so this is it for your entertainment tonight, all right? Okay, all right. Now, <laughs> so uh, Homer wrote the Iliad, and we have 643 copies, and that cements the reliability. There's no way possible to find 643 copies of, of the story of the Trojan War and so forth, and it matches at 90% accuracy. It's, it's a literal impossibility to get... 643 copies at 90% accuracy, all uh, 643 copies in the world, and it just be people writing their own opinions. These are people carefully transmitting this down through the ages. There's only one document that surpasses the 643 of the Iliad. Anybody want to take a guess what it is? It's the New Testament. Anybody want to take a guess at the number of manuscripts we have? 25, Over 25,000 copies. It's a lot more than 643. Does, is there any debates about Plato saying, we don't really know what Plato said, and Plato you know, wasn't even a real person. Plato, nobody debates Plato. You know why? Because we have eight copies of his work that date 1,000 years after he lived is the oldest copy, a 1,000-year gap between when Plato lived and the oldest copy of what he wrote. And those eight copies, we know you can't have eight copies worldwide matching at 90% accuracy like his do, and it be made up stuff. So nobody ever questions Plato. Well, if eight copies, a thousand years after he lived, cements the truth of what Plato said, what do 25,000 copies that match at 99.5% accuracy, written within 50 years of the events that they're recording, how reliable is that? Easily passes that test far and above every other manuscript. Therefore, I can say this based on a historical test, not on an opinion. I can say, if you want to say, I don't trust this because it was written by several different men a long time ago and all of that, then you must then say you don't trust any document from history, that you can't know history at all. Because anything that you trust more than this is much less reliable historically than this. Does that make sense? All right. Okay. So when we look at the Bible itself, we need to know this. All right, no pointer. Okay. Do we have early testimony? The earlier the testimony about the events, the better, because the closer they are to, to when they happen. So I said the events of Plato that he wrote about, or, or, uh, or Homer, but they're about the same. How many year gap is there? A thousand years. Okay. The, the New Testament is this only ancient manuscript in existence that was written within the lifetimes of the people that are written about. Can you sense the importance of that? That means everything in here, the people who are written about negatively, who are usually the rulers, King Herod, Pilate, the governor, all these rulers have an opportunity to refute it, and we don't have one shred of evidence of them refuting anything in here. And they're alive when this is written. So the Apostle Paul can say this, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to Peter, to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 people at once, meant most who are still alive today. Why does he put that in there? 
Here's what he's saying. Go ask him yourself. Okay? How do you get away with writing something like that unless it really happened? All right, so do we have early testimony? I wrote all these slides out. I'm not even using them. All right, here we go. Discoveries of early transmissions found in the 20th century have shortened the time gap between the lives of the writers and the earliest fragments we have. So this professor of uh, biblical theology at Yale said this, another result of comparing New Testament Greek with the language of the papyri discoveries is an increased confidence in the accurate transmission of the text of the New Testament itself. Very boring, dry quote, but it's very, very important. William F. Albright, the world's foremost biblical archaeologist, said this, we can say emphatically that there's no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after about A.D. 80. Now, I'm going to say there's good reason to say there's no book in the New Testament that should be dated after A.D. 70. Does anybody know what happened in A.D. 70? The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was burned down. That's not just some famous building burning down. That is the lifeblood and center of Jewish life for centuries. That is their sacred place where God dwelt. That was a bigger deal to them than any building we ever encounter in our lives. And Jesus Christ in around AD 30 said that that temple will be knocked down and not one stone left upon another. And he said, and your generation will by no means pass away before it happens. And exactly one biblical generation later, which is 40 years, it's down. So fulfilled prophecy of Jesus. He said it would happen and it did. Now, the significance of that event not being recorded in any book of the New Testament, not one New Testament writer mentions the destruction of the temple. What does that tell you about when they wrote it? Before it happened. Because Jesus, who they're trying to prove is the son of God risen from the dead, one of the easiest ways they could have proven it is said, look what he said. It would be knocked down, not one stone left upon another, and look, it happened. And that would have been one of the most convincing proofs they could have gave, and not one of them mentions it. It'd be like writing about terrorism in 2002 and never mentioning 9-11. Would that be a believable book if they don't even mention 9-11 in their book on terrorism, if it happened right afterwards? No. So they would have had to have mentioned the temple's destruction. It would have helped their case more than anything. But not one of them mentions it. That tells us these books were written before A.D. 70, which is within 40 years of the life of Christ. Okay? The people that are written about are still alive when they wrote it. That gives it great, great credibility. So he continues by saying, in my opinion, every book of the New Testament was written by a baptized Jew between the 40s and the 80s, I would say 70, of the first century A.D., very probably sometime between 50 and 75. And again, I would back that up to 50 to 70 for good reasons. All right. Um, I'm going to have to skip some of these just for time's sake. They're all really, really good, though. Okay. All right. Now, for people who say that Jesus was kind of a self-aggrandizer, he was kind of just full of himself and making big claims about himself, Philip Schaff, a great historian, said this. How could he be an enthusiast or a madman who never lost the even balance of his mind, who sailed serenely over all the troubles and persecutions as the sun above the clouds, who always returned the wisest answer to tempting questions, who calmly and deliberately predicted his death on the cross, his resurrection on the third day? That's significant because he's telling them, come back in three days and look at my tomb and see what happens. 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the founding of his church. He keeps mentioning the founding of a church when he only has 12 guys who don't even get it with him. Okay? Imagine when Andrew was starting a church and he kept saying, I'm going to start a church, and he's only talking to 12 guys, and they're all going, what's a church? And then it becomes a worldwide movement. You would say, that's pretty special of Andrew, right? There's got to be something very special about him. That's what Jesus pulled off. The destruction of Jerusalem, predictions which have literally been fulfilled. When it says, how could a madman sail serenely over all the troubles and persecutions, what it's referring to is this. Very often, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, they would try to trap Jesus with questions. They would ask him questions that with all of their intelligence and all of their learning, they thought there's nothing Jesus can answer that won't cost him his entire ministry here. Example, they'll say, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're actually talking about the temple tax that was used to fund the Roman soldiers that oppressed them. They had to finance their own oppression. How would you like that? So, of course, the Jews were very, very upset about this tax. So they asked Jesus in front of all of his followers, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus had just asked the Pharisees this question. He says, you want to ask me a question? Answer, uh, answer me a question first. He said, John the Baptist, see a prophet of God or, or not? And they huddled and they said, you know, if we say he's a prophet of God, they're going to say, why didn't we listen to him? If we say he wasn't a prophet of God, then all his followers are going to get mad at us because they think he was a prophet of God. So they came back to Jesus and they said, we don't know. So Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to talk to you. Now they come back to him and say, should we pay the tax or not? And remember, John the Baptist was beheaded, right? And what did they do with his head? Anybody know? king, right? They brought it to the king on a silver platter, John the Baptist's head. So Jesus asks a question about John the Baptist that they won't answer. So you know Jesus has got John the Baptist on his mind. So when they come to him and say, should we pay the temple tax or not? He says, show me the coin that you use. They all know what the coin is. So why does he want them to present the coin? Well, this is just my opinion, but I think it's so cool that I want to share it. If you look up the denarius that he asked for, it's a flat silver coin. It's like a dime, and it's got Caesar's head on it. So he asked Jesus, they, he asked about John the Baptist who had his head delivered on a silver platter, and they won't cooperate. So what does he do? He says, give me the coin. And what do they end up doing? Delivering Caesar's head to him on a silver platter. All right, I thought it would be cooler than that, but all right. So, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, but here's the thing. He said, whose image is on the coin? And they said, it's Caesar's. He said, well, then deliver unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but deliver unto God that which is God's. You know what he just told them? He said, if put your, putting your image on something makes that something yours and his image is on the coin, then give it to him. Pay the tax. But he says, but give unto God that which is God's. He's saying God has put his image on something as well, on you. Give yourself to God. And then amazing teaching. So he's saying, how does a madman pull that off? How could you accuse him of self-aggrandizement when clearly he's a sharp thinker and a very clear thinker? All right, let's move on. Philip Schaff finishes by saying, a character so original, so complete, 
so uniformly consistent, so perfect, so human, and yet so above all human greatness, can neither be a fraud nor a fiction. The poet, as been well said, would in this case be greater than the hero. I love this, how he finishes. It would take more than a Jesus to invent a Jesus. It would be harder to make him up than it would be for him to be actual. Okay? All right. So what helps with reliability of, of everybody in this room being able to say there is no question in my mind that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, risen from the dead on the third day, in fulfillment of the prophecies. He was a miracle worker and... And here's where people get offended. He commands my allegiance to him. Okay? How can we know that that's true? Why do people like me and Andrew and some of you give our entire lives over to this joyfully and without regret? How does that happen? Well, to be certain about it, because I'm not following anything that I'm not, I'm not certain about. Okay? I've given my whole career to this. I've given my whole life to this. I've lost friends over this. I've been laughed at, humiliated, all this over this. And I'm happy to do it all because he is so worth it. But I, I have the certainty. Okay, why? Because what does every judge in every trial want to see? Eyewitnesses. Who saw it? There's an accident. Cop shows up. What's the first thing he asks for? He doesn't want to talk to the driver or the person hit. Who does he want to talk to? Eyewitnesses, right? So let's look at eyewitness testimony. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Let me just paraphrase. He'll say this. I forgot. Let me look it up. <coughs> All right, he says this. And as much as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been filled among us. He said lots of people wrote about Jesus Christ. He says, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perf perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly count, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. He said, many people have written about this whole thing with Jesus Christ. I thought it'd be a good idea for me to write you an orderly account of all the events of Jesus' life. And there's our, not just our Gospel of Luke. Does anybody else know what Luke wrote? Acts. So he writes um, the life of Christ, Luke, and then he writes the life of the church, Acts. Um, these are all verses. I'm only going to cover this one right now. Um, <coughs> Because, let me set it up for you real quick. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, give me one second. Well, for time's sake, let me go to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Peter writes this. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter's putting his name and reputation online saying, all this stuff that we've said and written about Jesus Christ, we did not make it up. We saw it all. Okay, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, his buddy John, the apostle John, he starts his letter called 1 John this way. He says, that which we have seen with our eyes and we have heard with our ears and our hands have handled 
concerning the word of life, that is what we proclaim to you. That which we have seen and heard, we now make known to you. So John is saying this. We are eyewitnesses. We are ear witnesses. We are hand witnesses. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched. Here's why that's important. Atheism says there is no God, correct? And when you talk to atheists about it, the conversation goes very philosophical because they're going to bring up the problem of evil. They're going to bring up um, problem of pain, things like that. Okay, philosophical arguments where they don't think God exists. But what Jesus Christ does, he takes the philosophical God that atheists say, you know, how would you know? He, you can't see him. You can't hear him. You can't anything. How would you know? The Apostle John says this, that which I have seen with my eyes, that which I have heard with my ears, that which my hands have handled. He's saying the philosophical God is no longer a philosophical argument. He is now a historical argument. He is a historical art, just like if you want to say that George Washington, is he our first president or not? That's a historical argument. We can, we can get eyewitnesses for that. We can look at writings for that. We can give them the, the historical tests for reliability. We can do stuff with that. Jesus does that for the argument about God. Because now we can't say God's philosophical. We just got to wonder and, and consider. Now we get to address a historical figure. And we get, to, we get to evaluate his life and his words and, and look into his tomb with the ancients and say, did he rise from the dead or not? Because you know what nobody in history has ever seen? Otherwise, you would have never have heard the name Jesus Christ. You would have never heard his name if anybody in history has ever seen what? The body of Jesus Christ after he died. If that body's in the tomb, then you would have never heard the name Jesus Christ. But nobody could find that body. And if we have time, we'll get into atheist explanations for the empty tomb. Not one atheist will say the body was in there. Nobody says that. Okay, but they'll have other explanations what happened to it if we can get to it tonight. Otherwise, you can ask me in Q&A. I don't have a clock. I have no idea what time it is. So the proverbial hook, just let me, yeah. All right. Okay. Can do without that. Can do without that. do without that all right external evidence external evidence now internal evidence I gave you um, Peter says we didn't make this stuff up we saw it the Apostle John said I saw him with my eyes I heard him with my ears I touched him with my hands right internally the Bible says we know what we know and that is that he's the son of God risen on the third day and we're proclaiming that agreed internally what about externally what about people say Prove to me Jesus without using the Bible, okay? First century Jewish historian Josephus Flavius mentions Jesus Christ quite a bit, including things like he was a wise man who was called, at the time of Pilate, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good. He was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned them to be crucified and to die. But those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So 
Josephus, a Jewish historian who has no skin in the game as far as trying to promote Jesus Christ as Messiah. That is not what he's doing. He, um, he's actually kind of a traitor. He's a Jewish historian who, when the Romans took over Jerusalem, uh, instead of going to his death like many of the Jews proudly did, he said, hey, I'll be on your side, and I'll write history for you and everything. And they took him, and they actually, uh, they, they're the ones that gave him the name uh, Flavius. That's not a Jewish name, Flavius. That's very Roman. So um, he becomes Josephus Flavius because he uh, kind of sold out to the Romans there. But we're fortunate he did because he becomes a great, great Christian resource for us because he mentions Jesus quite a bit. Um, he mentions prophecies here, whom the prophets have written. Let me give you this on that real quick. There's a writer named Josh McDowell. You might be familiar with him. He was an agnostic, and he got challenged in college as he was ridiculing these eight Christians that met for Bible study. They finally said to him, if you're so smart, why don't you go research it yourself? He literally quit college there, went to Europe to study in their libraries. I have no idea what's wrong with our libraries, but that's what he did. He went to Europe, studied in their libraries. He says he put in 700 hours of research and became a Christian through his research. And he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? Talking of the tomb of Christ. He took the prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, which there's different people will give different numbers for how many there were. Um, Josh McDowell says there was 333 Old Testament prophecies with 444 details to those prophecies. So it's very easy numbers to remember. He presented those numbers to a research institute to say, what are the odds of any one man ever living past, present, future, fulfilling all these prophecies? He just wanted to know how many, how many people are we talking about that are eligible to say that they're the Messiah? Because if it's a million to one shot, then there's been millions of people that would be eligible, right? There, there, there's been trillions of people that have been alive, so a million to one shot. If it's a billion to one, then there's a few people that are eligible. A trillion to one, there's only a couple people eligible. He just wanted to know what are the odds. So they went through eight prophecies of the 333. The first date they went through was, you've got to be born in Bethlehem. Anybody still eligible in here? Now we're all out. Okay, just an aside real quick. I taught in a town in Brazil called Belém. Belen, Brazil, guess what Belen means? Bethlehem. I didn't know that. So guess what I said through a translator? I said, you'll never meet anybody in your lives ever born in Bethlehem. I go, how many of you know somebody born in Bethlehem? It got translated, and every hand went up. And I went, did you translate that wrong? He goes, no, Belen means Bethlehem. They're all born in Bethlehem. I was like, what are the odds of that happening? But anyways, <laughs> you got to be born in Bethlehem. You've got to be betrayed unto death. It's got to be by not an enemy, but by a friend. It's got to be for money. The money's got to be silver. It can't be any other currency. It's got to be 30 pieces, not 29 or 31. It's got to be thrown on the temple floor, and it's got to be gathered up to buy a potter's field. The odds of those being fulfilled, it's, according to this research institute, was 1 times 10 to the 17th power. That's a 1 with 17 zeros after it. Josh McDowell says, well, how do I understand that number? So they figured that out for him. They said this. That's how many silver dollars it would take lined up side by side by side to fill the state of Texas two feet deep for just eight of over 300 prophecies. So they did another 40 to come up with 48 prophecies, and the number was 1 times 10 to the 157th power, one with 157 zeros after it. The estimated 
number of molecules in the universe is between 1 times 10 to the 70th and 1 times 10 to the 80th. This is double that. The number that mathematicians and scientists put on the impossible and impossible event is that number that equates to how many molecules are in the universe between 1 times 10 to the 70th and 80th powers. They'll say any event past that will never happen. Just those 48 prophecies being fulfilled was 1 times 10 to the 157th. So I can say with mathematical certainty that it's impossible for Christianity to be wrong. And I'm not saying that out of emotion or bias or any. I'm saying it because that's what the mathematicians say. Who wants to volunteer for something real quick? All right. What's your name? What's your last name? What's your address? Zip code? And what's your first name? Is, is there any other Ryan in your house? Okay, so what Ryan just said about his name and his address separates him from the other 8 billion people on our planet. Nobody else on our planet can say that that information is true of them. It's only true of Ryan sitting right there. Don't ruin my point, Ryan. <laughs> it living in your address? With your last name? My point stands. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Your address sets you apart from any other person on the planet, correct? God the Father gave his son Jesus Christ an address. It's 333 prophecies that say nobody will be able to make the claim of being the son of God but him. You don't have to do much investigation. God has narrowed it down to one and only one possibility. All right. How much time do I have? Okay. All right. So now, external evidence. Let's keep going with that. Tiberius Caesar was the, the Caesar that ruled the world in the time of Jesus Christ. He was obviously the most powerful man on the planet, the most well-known man on the planet. He was the ruler of the world. Now, how many sources that are within the first 150 years of Christ's life the first 150 years of the church, how many sources do you think mention the most known powerful man in the world, Tiberius Caesar? How many sources do you think mention his name in the first 150 years of the church? Guesses. 11. 12. 13. Okay, we have counters here. That's good. All right. <laughs> nine. There are nine sources that mention Tiberius Caesar. Now, to be fair to Tiberius Caesar, I'm not going to count Christian sources whatsoever. How many non-Christian or even anti-Christian sources do you think mention Jesus Christ, a homeless, itinerant Jewish preacher, not the most powerful man in the world, but a homeless, itinerant preacher? How many non-Christian sources in that same time period do you think mention Jesus Christ? Ten. One more than Tiberius Caesar. What man must you be to be in 10 non-Christian sources when the ruler of the world's in only nine? If we include Christian sources, Jesus Christ wins 43 to 10. 
Guess how Caesar got to a tenth source? We put him in our Bible. That was his tenth source. Okay? Can you explain that short of him being who he said he was? If we look at non-Christian sources, never mind Christian sources, non-Christian sources, here's what we would know of Jesus Christ without ever looking at a Bible or looking at any Christian writer. We would know that he lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. We would know that he lived a virtuous life, that he was a miracle worker. We can learn that just from non-Christian sources, that he had a brother named James, that he was acclaimed to be the Messiah, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. And you would say, but darkness happens all the time. The claim of this is the darkness happened from noon till 3 in the afternoon. And it's attested in secular history that it happened. His disciples believed that he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for that belief. Christianity rapidly spread as far as Rome and his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus as God instead, which they would have, before Jesus came, they would have been convinced this behavior would have landed them in hell for sure. So how did they become convinced that they're not going to hell for worshiping a man rather than they're just the Jewish God, the Father that they, they believed in? Utter blasphemy for them to look at a man and worship him. But that's what they did for the rest of their lives. What else did they do? They stopped worshiping on Saturday and started worshiping on Sunday. How do you get Jews in the first century off of these very Jewish beliefs? They never do another sacrifice. They tell you you don't have to be circumcised. They worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, and they eat whatever they want. How do you get Jewish men in the first century to behave like that? The only way, I assure you, is if they saw you risen from the dead. It's the only way that these men would have changed the way that they did. This tells us that any theory that Jesus never existed is completely void of any merit whatsoever. I want you to know, and I don't mean to be insulting, that if you hold to the theory that he never existed, you stand rather alone and without any evidence or support or any credible scholarship on your side whatsoever. There's, it's not a matter of did he exist or not. It's a matter of, it's not even a matter of did he die the, the matter is, did he rise again? Okay. How could non-Christian writers collectively reveal a storyline that's congruent with the New Testament if Jesus never existed? How could these non-Christian writers say the same things about Jesus that the Bible does if the man never existed? All right. So Clark H. Pinnock, professor emeritus of systematic theology at McMaster Divinity College, said this about everything I just said, he said this. There exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. An honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based on an irrational or an anti-supernatural basis. Any skepticism, he says, that you have towards the existence of Jesus is only meritable on an irrational basis or an anti-supernatural basis. Anti-supernatural means this. I don't believe in miracles, so anything that looks like a miracle, I disregard it from the get-go. Okay? Which, 
I wouldn't put you guys on the spot like this, but we did an atheist forum at the Boca East campus a couple months ago and invited atheists to come in and ask us questions. It was a really wonderful experience. And um, somebody said, you actually believe in a virgin birth? And I said, so do you. And they said, no, I most certainly do not. I said, yes, you most certainly do. Guess what they said? No, I most certainly do not. Guess what I said? Yes, you most certainly do. Here's what I mean. You believe that the universe and every single thing in it came out of absolutely nothing. You can't get a more virgin birth than that. At least I had a woman to work with. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. What can he say? Okay. <laughs> I tell jokes and nobody's laughs. I give you great points and everybody's laughing. Uh, all right. Okay. All right. Okay. I usually get people go, I'm laughing on the inside. I said, that doesn't help me feel comfortable up here at all. I need you laughing on the outside. All right. Here we go. So do we have testimony from multiple eyewitness sources? So is it just a New Testament? Or do we, uh, is it just, is it like the Quran of Islam that's written by one man and you believe him or you don't? He's either, either his writings are trustworthy or they're not. Well, the New Testament it's not one book, it's 27. It's not written by one person, it's written by nine who are either eyewitnesses or directly attached to an eyewitness, like Luke was directly attached to an eyewitness, okay? What's easier to pull off as a fraudulent religion? One man writing one book about it, or nine guys, maybe 10, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Nobody knows the author of Hebrews, we just know it was a man. How do we know it was a man? It's not called Shebrews, all right, forget Okay. I'm sorry. I teach 17-year-olds. You got to tell dumb jokes or they go crazy. <laughs> All right. So, um, obviously, the more authors you have, the harder it's going to be to pull off a fraud, isn't it? Okay. All right. Ten reasons we know that we could trust these New Testament writers. Because clearly, the fact that they were willing to die for this Know this, the writers of the Bible, the writers of the New Testament, did not have book tours. They did not sign their books. They did not make money on this. All of them, each and every one of them, received torturous beatings, jail time, and then every one of them, except for the Apostle John, got sentenced to death through execution. And not one of them took back their story. And they're not even together encouraging each other. They're all off in different parts of the world separate and alone, and they receive beatings, prison, and execution without changing a syllable of the story. Here's another reason we know they told the truth. They tell embarrassing details about themselves. Here's what they write. Jesus said this, and we didn't get it. He said, I'm going to go to the cross rise on the third day. And we said, we'll never let that happen to you. Okay? Why would they write that? When they're trying to make him the hero and they're the guys that are supporting the hero, they're like, we, we didn't get it. He kept yelling at us all the time. He kept rebuking us. They include difficult sayings. Difficult sayings. If you're following Jesus, if, if, you, if you were 5,000 and he said, hey, have a seat, you look hungry, and the little boy comes up with uh, some bread and fish and all of you get fed as much as you want to eat with 12 baskets left, left, left over of that, 
And then you're like, he's really cool. We're going to follow him again tomorrow. So you follow him the next day, and he's seeing the 5,000, which scholars say was 15 to 20,000 because they don't count women and children. He's got a basketball stadium of people following him, not because he sent out flyers and, and all that. It's because it was just a regular Tuesday for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Okay. He has thousands and thousands of people following, and here's what he does because he wants to know who's real deal. He stops the crowd. He turns around. And he says this, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What would you have done at that moment? It's cannibalism, isn't it? He wants to know who's real deal. It says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you have no life in you. And John 6, 66, isn't that a little weird? The only New Testament chapter 6 that has a 66 verse in it is John, and here's what it says. Because of what Jesus just said, it said, many of them decided to walk with him no longer. That's the work of the devil in your life. If you don't walk with Jesus Christ, it's because you're listening Two, did God really say the same thing Adam and Eve heard? Okay? And Jesus doesn't stop them. He lets them leave. Because he wants to know this. He wants to know, if you get confused about me, is that enough for you to quit? Because he knows you will get confused about him throughout your life. Isn't that true? I do. But he wants to know, do you know me well enough to trust me in your confusion? Can you stay? Because he looks at the 12 as he sees these people walking away in John 66. He turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to leave me too? Now, what is he talking about when he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood? He's talking about communion. But they have never had communion. They don't know that yet. And he's not explaining it to them because he simply wants to know, do you follow me for me or because you're having a good time? Because you're not always going to have a good time. And I need you to follow me when you're not having a good time. So if you can look at me and know who I am and not judge me based on your circumstances, then you'll keep on following me. So that happens in John 6. John 7, does he teach him about communion? John 8, John 9, John 10. John 11, John 12, this is a long time going by, and there's got to be dozens of times they looked at each other and they go, what are we going to do when he holds out his arm and says, take a bite? What are you going to do? You're going to bite or you're not going to bite? What are you going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. But then John 13 comes, and it's the Last Supper, and Jesus holds up a loaf of bread, and he says to the 12, this is my body. And I think everybody at that table said, thank God that's your body. <laughs> I can eat that. And then he holds up a cup of wine and he says, this is my blood. And what did they say? That's your blood. I can drink that. But listen, you have to hold on in your confusion from John 6 until you get to your John 13 moment. You've got to persevere. You've got to endure. And above anything else, you know why all Israel's and Judah's kings fail? They lacked one word that Jesus is calling you to. It's the word trust. They kept paying off Egyptian kings or Assyrian kings to protect them. And God's saying, stop doing that. I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. But because they don't trust, he, he, he's, he says, now a people that were called my people are no longer called my people. You're the ones that walked away when I said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You have to trust. 
You have to know who he is. Also, we know they're trustworthy because they include demanding sayings of Jesus. Demanding sayings. He'll say this. You have heard it said of old, do not commit adultery. Where, where's the of old that he's talking about? Where did they read that? Moses, right? Moses. Now, now watch a man who's claiming authority. He says, you heard it said of old, do not commit adultery. Then he says this, but I tell you. Do you hear that? He's saying you and your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents all the way back hundreds and hundreds of years to Moses all held him up in the highest of esteem as a messenger of God. But I'm telling you, somebody greater than Moses is here. So you've heard it said of old, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even lust because then you've committed adultery in your heart. He's saying, I have more authority than Moses. They're, they're, when these guys write this in their Gospels, they know the Jews will want to kill me for writing this, but they write it, okay? They distinguish Jesus' words from their own. If they're making up the story, why didn't they solve all the issues that they're going to want solved by saying, well, Jesus said it. They don't, when, they, when they say you don't have to be circumcised, why don't they, if they're making up the story, they say Jesus said you don't have to be circumcised. But why don't they credit Jesus with stuff like that that would solve the issue right then and there? Instead, Paul takes on those battles himself without ever quoting Jesus. That's, that's a sign that they're writing authentically, not putting it all on Jesus. You see what I mean? All right, well, maybe the next one. All right. They include details of the resurrection that are easily dismissed if they weren't true or would hurt their believe, believability, like this. The burial of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin. If Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the enemy, the one that strung him up, so if they're making up the story, why do they include him as saying he gave his tomb to Jesus. You can't get away with that type of thing, okay? They would never say women were the first eyewitnesses. Do you know in that day a woman, a woman could eyewitness a murder and be the only eyewitness and they would not take her testimony in court just because she's a woman. The most important event in the history of the world is the resurrection of Christ and when he rises from the dead, he lets Peter and John who were in the tomb leave until it's just Mary and then he appears. Don't ever listen to anybody tells you that the Bible's anti-woman. For the date that the Bible was written, it's groundbreaking progress for women. Stuff that was never done for women is done in our Bible in their day. The conversion of priests. How do you say that this, this priest got converted unless he was really converted? Because he'll be showing up in synagogue still teaching the Old Testament, won't he? But now he's talking about Jesus. How, do, how, how are they going to lie about a man like that when they're listening to him in synagogue every Saturday? All right. Um, there's over 30 confirmed historical people included in the apostles' writings. They could not have gotten away with writing outright lies about Caiaphas, Pilate, Festus, Felix. Um, these are the rulers of the land in the day. And they're alive when the Gospels are written. How do you write about these powerful people, lies about them, and it not get changed or redacted? Or there's some writing that we find that they're saying, hey, those apostles are writing a bunch of lies about us. There's nothing that refutes the apostles' writings in their day. God bless you. Uh, let's see. The New Testament writers challenge the readers to verify the facts that they give them. They challenge you to verify. In other words, 1 Corinthians 15, I think I gave you that one already. Paul says, 
Jesus first appeared to Peter and John, then to the 12, and then to his brother James, and then to over 500 people who were alive. Uh, he appeared to them at once, and he says many of them are still alive today. That's his way of saying, go ask him yourself. Acts 26, 26, he's talking to, I think it's Governor Felix at that time, and he says, Jesus was attested to you by miracles, and he says, and you know this, Festus, because those, these things were not done in a corner. He says, everything I'm saying, you know. Because when Jesus did a miracle, he didn't do it behind the dumpster behind Publix. He was in the middle of the city streets, public displays of, what, of, of his miracles. So he's able to say to him, when I tell you about the miracle working Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, you can't say that without them saying, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. All right. For 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, I was attested to you as an apostle by signs and wonders and miracles that I did among you so if i came here and i said hey you guys know who i am i did miracles among you you'd be like i'm out of here this guy's crazy right you can't say stuff like that unless it's true okay <laughs> i love this one they're bland descriptions of the climax of the story when they tell you about the resurrection here's how they do it and the tomb is empty if they're making it up aren't they going to go and guess what they're going to make a huge thing like that that they're going to base the rest of their life on, this huge climactic ending, crescendo, symbols banging, all that. And they just go, I ran to the tomb, and there was just nothing but his dirty laundry. And so I left. Okay? Nettie Wright said this, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wanted to tell stories whose import was this, Jesus is risen, therefore you will be too, they did a remarkably bad job of it. I mean, why are they going to say he rose from the dead? They don't give you the theological significance of it at all. They're just storytelling. They're just saying, here's what happened. It takes Paul and later people to go, this is for forgiveness of sins. This is for this. this is for, they, they start putting the whole Old Testament, New Testament together later and going, wow, look at what it means. Look what it means. Okay? All right. So here's the tenth and final reason why they're trustworthy. Listen, these guys did animal sacrifice. Why? Because they wanted to go to heaven, and they knew they needed a sacrifice. They never did it again after Jesus. They thought the law of Moses was binding upon them. Now they say, you don't have to listen to the law of Moses. They were strict monotheists. Now they say that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do you get these guys who would have been convinced you go to hell for any one of those three? How are they now doing it themselves and boldly putting themselves at risk to get other people to follow. There's just no other good explanation than it's just true. They used to worship on the Sabbath. Now it's on Sunday. They thought when Messiah came from their scriptures, he'd be a military ruler that would take down the Romans. Now they believe he was somebody that was led to the slaughter as a lamb as it to its shears. They were very much had circumcision as important. Now they switch that to baptism and communion as important. Um, Watergate. You guys, should I even talk about Watergate? <laughs> yes? All right. Richard Nixon made him resign, write the scandal from Watergate. Well, Chuck Colson, who's a great prison ministry guy now, went to prison because he was one of the Nixon's guys that were doing... Uh, is stealing secrets from the uh, Democrats and so forth. So 
Chuck Colson said this about Watergate. He said, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, per perpetuated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America, who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president, president about what was really going on. It only took him two weeks to cave and turn on Richard Nixon. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is, all those around the president, were, all they were facing was embarrassment and prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Their lives are totally at stake. Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their own dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. You have to grant them credibility for who they were and what they did. And they did it all just to be able to say this. My friend rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. His death was supposed to be your death. And there's absolutely nothing that you have ever experienced in your life or ever will that's more important than what I just said. It's just a matter of are you offended by that or are you blessed by that? Well, thanks for tuning in today. I hope that you are blessed by that message. If you're looking for some more sermon content and information about our church, you can visit solaschurch.com. 